Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 54 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I come to you slump-shouldered, humbled, and very annoyed at myself. Uh, now, if you listen to the uh, previous episode, uh, episode 53, I said that today we'd be discussing X-Force number 7. And that's because the uh, reading order list that I used in the back of the Dawn of X books did not include... X-Force number 6, and uh, that was all books that were cover dated March of 2020, and then uh, I didn't see X-Force number 6, I didn't didn't give it a second thought. So then I jumped to the April 2020 cover dated books, and X-Force number 7 was one of the first. And so I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, I spent several hours making a list and putting together album art for about 25 episodes, which... Oh man, that was tedious and annoying, and I was happy to have it out of the way. And then I uh, I went to my short box of Dawn of X books and pulled out the next issue of X-Force and saw Beast on the cover of it, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember manipulating a cover with Beast on it, because I spend, you know, a good 5-10 minutes with each cover as I'm, you know, manipulating it into the album art. And, uh... I was like, I would have remembered Beast, and no, no, I didn't. I didn't do it. So, so we're a number off for uh, ever <laughs> going forward. So I'm going to have to spend another couple of hours uh, fixing my goof up. And uh, I mean, you guys ain't gonna have to worry about it. It's uh, you guys wouldn't even notice it if I didn't mention it today, probably. But. I figure in the uh, interest of transparency and, uh, I don't know, just a a human mistake, I guess. A human moment, I think they might call it. I haven't haven't had very many of those, so... No, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, yeah, today we're going to be doing X-Force number six. The next episode, we're going to do number seven. So we're going to do two X-Forces in a row, and then we'll just keep going here, and I will will set aside another couple hours to fix... (laughs) the album art for the next 20 or so episodes, but uh, I was so annoyed with myself when I saw this, and I didn't want to go downstairs and confirm my suspicion that I did it wrong, but, uh, yeah, first thing this morning I saw it and was just like, oh, man. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X-Force Volume 6, Number 6, had a March 2020 cover date. We're going back in time. 
Stories called Intelligence, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors are by Guru EFX. Letters, VCs Joe Caramagna. The head of X is still Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99 and went on sale January 29th, 2020. We open with our roll call. And we've got Beast, Wolverine, Domino, Kid Omega, who's already back, Marvel Girl, Sage, Black Tom Cassidy, and Professor X. From here, double page spread of creds, then we open our story. And we open in a place called Terra Verde, where X-Force are just one click away from their next target. Now our Strike Force consists of Wolverine, Quentin, Domino, and Jean Grey. Sage is in the background doing a tracking thing like she does, and Beast is the one giving the orders from Krakoan Command. He tells them, or Sage tells them, not to leave behind any witnesses here. Because, of course, X-Force doesn't have to acknowledge that pesky kill-no-man rule. You know, just like seemingly every other X-Team right now. Now, from here, we hop directly into our forced dialogue du jour. Now, Beast compares what he's doing to conducting an orchestra. And we get to see visuals of each of our team members using their instruments. And uh, that, that's not a euphemism. Uh, during this, Hank compares them to the kind of music they would be, which is a little cringy. But for those interested, uh, Quentin Choir would be a shrill, brilliant violin. Domino would be a fun, emotive sax. Sage harmonizes in the background. Why even bother with her? Come on. Wolverine mindlessly beats drums and crashes cymbals. And Jean's a cello. There you go. Anywho, as we watch Hank watch, uh, X-Force is slicing and dicing some alien-looking creatures, and we'll find out more about them in just a little bit. From here, though, we go to an info page, and it's uh, the quick and dirty on Terra Verde. Well, I suppose it would be the quick and dirty if it didn't take up an entire page, but it actually gives us some very interesting information, so we're going to allow it, and we're actually going to dive deep into this page because this is some cool stuff. Now, we learn that Terra Verde was advancing the science of telefloronics, which, uh, I mean, we've all heard of, like, the nebulous use of nanotechnology in comics, right? Now, this is sort of like that, only biological and organic. Uh, now, this telefloronic dealy has similar healing effects as the Krakoan magic meds. But here's the thing, it could also be weaponized which I think is going to be the angle we're going to be exploring here. And I tell you what, there's a lot of meat on that bone, so let's do this. Now, the gist of what gets us to our next scene is that Terra Verde had initially refused to sign the Kirkoan Treaty. Then they even like threatened to sue the mutants for plagiarism, considering that their, uh, their nano, nano fluorites or whatever do very similar things. But at this point, they've changed their minds and they will sign on. Now, we hop back to yesterday. Our opening scene was now. Now we're jumping back in time to get us there. Now, yesterday, the, tr the signing of that treaty was to take place. And we see Xavier on stage with uh, Terra Verde's president, Manuel Cocom. Now, Xavier has Tom Cassidy at his, uh, at his side, while the Prez has his son, Hadwin Cocom, helping him make peace with this decision. The press conference begins, but then... A trio of reporters shapeshift into Martian Manhunters? Well, like a plant-like Martian Manhunter, I guess. Uh, 
Have uh, you ever seen it when like John Jones shapeshifts into like the creepier looking version of himself? Like not the, not like the round headed one, but like the pointy one. He's got like scaly sort of. He's sort of scaly and pointy. Now that's what these reporters have transformed into. Black Tom throws himself in front of Charles to prevent a reoccurrence of what happened back in issue one. Now the bad guys, Muerte Verde, they basically just threaten President Kokom and leave. Now, we follow Black Tom back to Krakoa, where he fills Beast and Sage in on his report. And they're both a bit incredulous that this encounter didn't end with any injury or fatality. Tom suggests that he proved to be too scary for him, which uh, is kind of adorable, I guess. Sage decides to get a better look at the replay, and is immediately able to deduce that the Martian Manhunters weren't actually going after Xavier or the President, but instead had their designs on the Sun Hadwin. And it looks like they got him, even though I don't think we actually saw that bit happen. Now, later on, at the presidential estate, Hank McCoy pulls a little B&E. He peeks into the presidential suite and sees Manuel being attended to by a doctor. Now, the doctor, he's like, you've had a busy day, you should rest. And so, when he, the doc, goes to leave the room, Beast punches him in the face. That, <laughs> I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, the president justifiably freaks the F out and rushes to an open window to make a leap for it. Unfortunately for him, however, Jean Grey just happens to be floating outside that window. Manuel begs them to leave, knowing that the Muertes will kill his son if they find out that they're talking. Jean decides to, you know, cut through the, the nonsense here and just read this fella's mind to figure out exactly what's going on here. Now she learns, and then we learn, that the Muerte Verdes were a group of telefloronic scientists. Now, this goes back to what we learned on the info page, which, as I mentioned, is very interesting. These scientists infected themselves with the nanofluorites or whatever, and it's changed them. You know, clearly, it's changed them. Uh, Gene compares this to the development of an atomic-level weapon. B suggests that they strike the muertes tonight, and instructs Gene to do a mind sweep of the presidential home to make sure nobody, except the president himself, remembers that they're there, they were there. Beast wants old Manuel to realize that he'll always be in debt to the mutants for solving this problem. To which I say, how about we don't get ahead of ourselves, Henry? Uh, this, the, there are shoes getting ready to drop here. Next, another info page. This is something out of Professor X's journal where he writes about his resurrection and how it was sort of a good thing he died in the first place as it showed that while he was off the table, the Krakoans were able to realize that their existence didn't so much depend on him, but on themselves. Fair enough. So now, we finally get back to those opening pages of the book here. So we're in the now. Beast is conducting his orchestra of violence as they mow their way through the Muertes Verdes. Uh, Beast thinks to himself that these Muertes are the, organi are, are the organic equivalent to an Omega Sentinel, which... That's also very interesting. Now, he posits that they might wind up giving way to another version of what he calls an Omega Cycle, something that could potentially lead to the extinction of mutant kind. And I wonder if we're working under that sort of that post-human premise, like, you know, doomed futures and whatnot, um, which would make it a future that Mora hasn't yet encountered, if you know what I mean. We've seen the Nimrod future of X-squared and the post-human and phalanx future in X-cubed, but as far as I can remember, back in Hoxpox, we haven't seen, like, an organic norofluorite deal. Um, and I, I like this idea quite a bit. It's, it's very unexpected, 
You know, I wasn't expecting going to go into this issue and 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 have this sort of a concept dropped on us. It's very good stuff. Now, Beast, he's cleaning his glasses, and he congratulates himself for always being five steps ahead, which is kind of like literary shorthand for uh, about to screw the pooch. Now, as X-Force continues pushing their way through, Beast reminds Jean about that whole leave-no-witnesses edict. And uh, Jean has a little bit of a problem with this, as you might imagine. And uh, even though they're facing off against you know, twisted abominations who want to wipe their kind off the planet, Jean still doesn't want to kill anybody. Now, Beast compares these muertes to Omega Sentinels, and he suggests that they're more plant than human at this point. And, you know, justification is a hell of a drug. And so, Jean pretends she's hovering over a planet full of asparagus-headed aliens and does the thing. Henry thanks her. He tells her she did the right thing, to which she tells him to more or less kiss her ass. Uh, She actually does curse, which... eh, I don't know if I want to see Jean Grey curse, but that's just me. Now, X-Force reaches a pyramid in the middle of Terra Verde. On top of it is Hadwin Kakom, who reveals, duh, he was in on it all along. And so he transforms into a Martian Manhunter and gets his butt kicked so fast they don't even bother to show it on panel. We resume back on Krakoa, where Hank has Hadwin tied to a table with Krakoan coils. He deduces that the kidnapping was staged in order to buy the telefloronic scientists a little bit more time. Now... Had this been successful, Terra Verde would have become a world power. Not only would they have a complete competing medicine on the market with the Krakoan magic meds, these nanofluorites would provide a bonus in the ability to uh, weaponize your body. And uh, you figure mutant sovereignty would probably go straight out the window at this point. Now, Beast reveals that he destroyed the Muerte's lab, and he also had every last one of them burned to ash. Hank was uh, up front with uh, his fellow Kirkoans, and he's like, hey, I really want to interrogate this Hadwin guy. And the interrogation process consists of a bio-study of his body and then snapping his neck. Hadwin is returned to his father, but is in more or less a vegetative state, no pun intended. Hank continues to narrate this scene, confirming that President Kokom now feels resentful of his own scientists and indebted to the mutants just like he planned. Kakon signs the Krakoan Treaty, just like Hank planned. The Terra Verdans get access to the magic meds, millions of lives are saved, and everything is right with the world. Now, as we close out the issue, we focus on Hadwin lying in his bed, when he begins to decompose, or melt, or something. He oozes into a putty, and proceeds to continue to ooze out a window. Outside, we see that this putty has taken a humanoid form and is casually walking away. Five steps ahead, Henry, huh? Maybe not so much. Next time out, we will discuss X-Force number seven. I mean it this time. We'll actually do it. But first, let's talk about this pretty out-of-nowhere spectacular issue. Um, Hot damn, I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Going into this... With the beast waxing on about being a symphonic conductor, I was, I was literally shaking my head. I, I was reading it in bed, thinking to myself, how many times can I talk about how forced this writing is without that itself becoming forced, right? Like, I worry, like, are listeners going to think that I'm trying to make X-Forced a thing? Where I'm just going to nitpick this book a lot harder than I do the others just to keep up the gimmick? 
And uh, yeah, these are things that I actually worry about. You know, then we get into the actual meat of the story, and from of all places, a friggin' info page. <laughs> we get like rock solid, honest to goodness, interesting information about the Telefloronics. I mean, this was so unexpected. Here we are, X Force number six. We're getting actual progression in an issue that isn't oversized, isn't overpriced, isn't overhyped, isn't part of a 25 part crossover event. It's just a wonderful little treat for those of us who still buy these things week to week and month to month. It's almost enough to sort of kind of bring the magic of the single issue back for me. Um, I go into so many of these books. And if, you're, if you've been listening for all 53 issues, you know, first, thank you. And, and second, you, you know that it's hard to get excited about these all the time. So I go into so many of these feeling as though we're going to get just like a lame duck chapter of a lame duck story. So here we are. We get a done-in-one, with which actually brings with it ramifications and progression. And I'm sitting here dumbfounded. I almost don't know how to respond to it. I mean, like, like what year are we in? I, I don't even know. Are we still in current year? Is, uh, this doesn't feel like... The, the amount of information we're getting here just doesn't feel like uh, that's the case. Now, I, I love the idea of the uh, nanofluorites. And I really appreciate that we're getting something new, yet familiar, for our team to contend with. Like I said during the synopsis, uh, Mora's futures don't show this. So it feels like, perhaps for the first time, we're actually like steering off the rails that Hoxpox put us on, right? Things might not necessarily be fated to be. I think we're, we were told that certain things are going to happen and... and Many of us were just sitting here waiting for those things to happen. With this issue, it tells us that we're not just watching things play out the way they're supposed to. This is new, you know? And maybe maybe I'm over-romanticizing something that'll never come up again. But this issue left me with this like odd mixture of like dread and hope, which is pretty weird, right? I mean, I'm actually worried about what this new, potentially omega-level threat to mutant kind might actually pose. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it play out. And that is, of course, assuming that it does play out. Uh, just really, really like this concept, and uh, feels like a, like a cosmic curveball, which we don't get enough of. We really don't get enough of it. So what else? What else? Um, maybe it's just me, but I don't like seeing Jean Grey curse. And I promise I'm, I'm really not a prude. I try not to curse on the air. Um, though if you talk to me casually, I'm from New York. It sort of just happens. Uh, cursing is part of my native tongue, I guess. So I'm not against cursing as a thing, but I don't know. It feels like Jean ought to be able to express herself without it. And yeah, this is a dumb sticking point, and it's not a hill worth dying on, but it did stand out to me as being a little bit much... I know they were probably trying to drive the point home that, you know, Jean was forced to do something she didn't want to do, but still, I don't know, I see her as being a little bit classier than that. Not that not that everyone who curses is unclassy, but, uh, I mean, I consider the source of that statement, but I don't know. Just don't see Jean doing it. Now let's talk about Beast. He's our point of view character here, and I think I've said it before here, he's one of my very favorite comics characters. Uh, you know, to... to Further, you know, to press that Up up until uh, last week I only owned two Funko Pops That were given to me by my wife 
And uh, they were just of my favorite characters. Uh, one of them was the Hulk, who I love but unfortunately can't read anymore. And the other was Beast. And uh, Beast is my second favorite X-Man, right behind Cyclops, who, as it would just so happen, that my wife surprised me with a Cyclops pop a few days ago. It was one of the Marvel's 80th anniversary uh, figures with uh, the original 1963 costume. And the head on this Cyclops is gigantic, so it's very hard to keep him standing up. But uh, he is right behind me on the bookshelf, staring down at me. And uh, hopefully he'll he'll stay there. He won't fall down, because he has fallen down about three times already. So, all this to say, I love the Beast. Um, the Beast is... He's way, way up there. But I've hated the way he's been treated over the course of... I can't even remember the last time I liked Beast. Maybe Morrison's run. Um, it's been... He's been written very poorly. He's been treated bad. Um, and I feel like this issue might... And this is me, pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna here. Maybe it'll lead to something of a redemption arc for him. So long as they're not totally ham-fisted about it. I mean, Beast plotted this entire deal. It was precise, and as far as he knows, worked to a T. But we know better. We know that his five steps ahead actually put him like a step or two behind. Uh, When he learns this, assuming he does learn this... I think that might be an opportunity to re-examine and re-explore this character. Um, maybe make him a bit less of a pompous, semi-villainous prick. Maybe make him act a bit more like he used to. Uh, that is, of course, assuming a lot of things. Uh, first, that this Muertes Verdes nanofluorite deal is ever revisited. And second, that Ben Percy doesn't turn Beast into like an emo ninth-grade creative writing student. <laughs> if this does happen. And I am thinking way too hard about this, and I'm... I'm taking it five steps uh, in five steps ahead where we don't even have an inclination that there'll be a first. Uh, all this to say, I like having Beast as a point of view character, but I wasn't too happy with the way he behaved. Um, I don't like how quick he was to break what's his face Hadwin's neck. Uh, that seems like one of those things it'll be hard to walk back. You know, uh, he. He put a guy in a vegetative state to uh, to pull a fast one here. Of course, you know, he does sort of justify it in that, you know, the needs of the millions over the needs of the one. But uh, still, I, I, I don't know. It's a toughie to walk back. I feel like maybe one of my problems with this book, to, you know, in addition to the some somewhat ham-fisted writing style... Is that the bloodthirst in this story in this series is a little bit much? I feel like Marvel and Percy have this idea that this is what an X Force comic is supposed to feel like. Um, I mean, and that's despite the fact that many other writers have been able to write X Force stories that weren't so brutally and prolifically violent. I mean, X Force has been a thing for thirty years now, and not every issue is like this. It's actually only in recent years where X-Force is like this, because they're the ones who are going to do things the X-Men won't do. And, uh, I don't know, there's a logic to that, but it's also one of those things where if you keep topping yourself in the violence department, then you're going to desensitize us to it. You know, because I feel like... I feel like it's it's funny, because I, I looked at the scene where Beast had Hadwin's neck broken by the Krakoan coils, right? Had that happened 
10 years ago, it would have been like a shock. It would have been like a, oh, wow, you know, that they, they mean business here. We see it this time, and it's just like, well, it's just another page in an X-Force comic. You know, it's a violent book. It's what we come to expect. It sucks that Beast did it, but it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't make me stop and take pause. It just makes me realize, like, wow, this is where comics are right now, and I, I don't like that bit of it. Um, and that's not to say I didn't love this issue, because I, I really did. But I, I guess that's just more a commentary on just uh, the envelope pushing in comics, right? Or envelope pushing. I never know how I say that word. Now, let's talk art. Uh, the art here from uh, Steven Segovia... Loved it. Thought it was awesome. I think the designs for the Muertes are a little bit iffy, but I definitely appreciated how much lighter this book looked under his pencils. Um, The colors were also a huge help in that regard as well. Uh, For the first time reading an X-Force book in the Dawn of X landscape here, it didn't feel like we were watching a movie happening on a submarine with all the lights out. Which, (laughs) I mean, it's a dark book usually, right? It's fitting for the tone that this book usually goes for, but... It isn't always that much of a joy to read, right? It's a little bit of a chore to try to make things out. So, just like Excalibur number 7, which we talked about last episode, X-Force is allowed to sort of go off on its own and just have an adventure. Sure, there are ties to the Dawn of X landscape, but for the most part, it's given a bit of free reign just to exist on its own. And it's all the better for it. I will say I will be relieved when we get to stop visiting all the countries that chose not to sign the Krakoan Treaty. Uh, That wrinkle is starting to feel a little bit played out, but that's just a minor quibble. Because it did, after all, establish a setting and then facilitated an interesting concept coming to uh, the fore. Overall, X-Force number 6 was probably my favorite issue of X-Force from this volume, and I'm looking forward to more. Now, thankfully, since I goofed up the episode numbering, we won't have to wait long because, as mentioned, next episode we're hopping right into X-Force number 7. Fingers crossed it's just as good as this one, though it's uh, got Domino on the cover. Actually, Domino running away from Domino's, so maybe I shouldn't get my hopes up, but uh, hey, fingers crossed. We gotta be optimistic. And uh, that's pretty much everything I have to say about uh, this very unexpected good issue of X-Force. But before I let you go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. And he's discussing giant size X-Men, Gene and Emma. He says, Being reminded of Nuff Said Month was a little painful. I didn't buy all the issues, but the ones I got only new X-Men and Avengers were good. Or out of the ones I got, only new X-Men and Avengers were good. Fantastic Four was dull and the rest were terrible. By far the worst was Uncanny X-Men, number 401, which I think would have been bad with dialogue and was bad and incomprehensible without it. And yeah, Nuff Said Month. Um, Nuff Said Month was one of those things that I had on the short list of things that we wanted to discuss on Weird Comics History because, I mean, it is a piece of Weird Comics History. And uh, it's one from a time that I don't think has become nostalgic yet, right? I think right now we're looking at I mean, Bronze Age will always be cool. People are always going to be nostalgic for that. Uh, whether you were there or not for it, it doesn't really matter. But I think right now, like uh, like the the 90s is what people are kind of nostalgic for. It's just kind of in the in the air, right? Um, people are waxing nostalgic about Wizard Magazine and stuff at this point. So 
we're not quite to the turn of the century. And so that was one of the reasons I was I was really wanting to discuss Nuff Said Month on uh, on Weird Comics History because not everybody else is doing it. Actually, nobody's doing it, which is why we picked things to do. It's uh, we don't want to be just another voice in in the choir. We wanted to you know do stuff ourselves. You know that's why we did like You Decide Month. Yeah, that we did that or you not You Decide Month, but the You Decide Stunt. Um, and Nuff Said was in that same list and uh and it was painful <laughs> as you mentioned here um i don't remember the avengers issue but i do remember it happening during the never ending war with kang which started out really strong to me but then it just like never ended i think it might still be going on it was just so drawn out uh new x men was good it was good, um, and just like we read with Giant Size, it was you know very similar in tone. I, I got all of them. I bought every single last one of them because I was a, a Marvel zombie at the time, and uh, which meant I got a lot of terrible books. And uh, yeah, Uncanny is almost certainly at the bottom of that pile. Um, ugh, that was during the X Core. Thing with a banshee uh, organizing a group, I think like the Blob was on it. Mimic might have been on it, and he was basically running them like, like the SS, and th- that was what the costumes originally looked like. I- I'd have to dig around the internet, but I remember there were images going around, and uh, I think, I think this is when I discovered xfan.com. I think I don't know if that's even still a thing anymore, but. Uh, there was a website, I believe it was xfan.com, and uh, and I remember seeing the original the original images for Uncanny number four hundred one with Banshee in the uh, in the very controversial uniform, and of course I'm an idiot and it went over my head. I'm I'm very ignorant to things in real life, so it went over my head and I was like I, I don't get it until you know I found out why it was such a bad thing to have happen and I was like oof that's a bad thing to have happen, but. Uh, Awful. Oh, that was so bad. Uh, and I always tell myself I'm gonna like do a full reread of Uncanny. I know I'll likely never have the time to do that, but uh, if I were to, this would be an era that I'm like morbidly curious to revisit. I feel like uh, I feel like this is like a dead zone for a lot of people um, between Casey and Austin. <laughs> you know, I, I think like there was a lot of stuff here that didn't age too well, and a lot of stuff was. And sucked even back then, but uh, it's one of those one of those runs, a rare run, uh, especially given uh, what my fandom used to look like, where I only read these things once. Uh, because leading up to this, I'd read things, I read, I read stuff over and over and over again, and uh, like the entire, God, like the entire first hundred issues of X Men Volume Two, I, I must have read all of those issues. Two or three times, four times maybe, you know Especially the early ones And X-Force, read all of them over and over again Uncanny from, you know, the gold team up till Up till, you know, after Claremont left Over and over again And uh, these issues, the Joe Casey and the Chuck Austin ones I read them once and put them away (laughs) So I'm actually very, very interested If I were ever able to find an extra couple hours to, uh to work my way through these things And uh, I'm also working very hard To try and uh, Like try to stick like a Like a like a crowbar 
you know, like a, like a figurative crowbar in between my hobbies. Like, I'd love to read them and not have to discuss them on the air. You know, I would love to just be able to read them for my own curiosity and enjoyment where I don't repurpose them into something, into a product or a or into content. But that's something that I'm struggling with. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, back to Damien. He says, Morrison was wise to choose a dreamlike setting for that silent story and that was blessed with Frank Quietly as the artist. This retread works well but doesn't feel as urgent. Storm's injury comes out of nowhere. She gets hit with an energy blast back in the issue with the Children of the Vault, but there's no suggestion that she was injured between then and now. And yeah, totally. The injury was very strange, and when I first opened this issue up and just saw her lying there, discovered by those children, I thought she was dead. I just, like, oh, okay, Storm's dead. She's gonna be put into an egg. She's gonna come out of an egg now. I definitely didn't remember her getting hit by the Children of the, the Vault. Um... I was probably too busy chewing on the scenery to, to notice something that plainly happened on panel, which is something that I do. So, uh, yeah, uh, this came out of com- completely out of left field for me. I didn't know when it happened, didn't know why it was happening, and didn't know what to expect moving forward. Uh, Damien continues, I was also surprised to see how the infection is dealt with. In later issues of Giant Size X-Men, Storm states that she doesn't want to give in to illness, but also that she doesn't want to kill herself and be reborn, and yet it's never mentioned in Marauders. In fact, I forgot she was meant to be ill because of an extended gap between issues of Giant Size and her acting as normal in Marauders. I'm sure the coordination could have been better. It totally could have, and it probably should have. I agree. Um, It's because of stories like this. I'm going to... I'm going to suggest that it's because of stories like this that there are all those contradictory reading order lists out there. Like, you can't find two reading order lists for Dawn of X that, that agree on much. I mean, if when I started doing this show, um, I had arranged the books in continu- you know, canon order, continuity reading order, you know, uh, what is sequential order, I suppose. Not, not in... One through sixes and whatever. This was just, I was taking it off the internet. You know, I had a list of, okay, this fits in here, this fits in there. And it was to the point where books that weren't even out yet or weren't delivered to my house yet came up early in the continuity. Like, I think, like, the first six issues of Wolverine all happen in between other issues of other books. And I had only had the first three. At that point, it's like, what? How, how am I going to do this? And uh, I probably would have been on a hiatus already had I uh, decided to go that route because it's it's weird, you know? I guess on the other hand, we would have gotten Fallen Angels out of the way in one go, but uh, hey, you take the good, you take the bad, right? Uh, Damien continues, You commented that some readers might feel conned by the price. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I buy all my comics digitally now. I have far too many comics, and I'm incapable of getting rid of them. My husband is convinced that one night the pile of 40-odd short boxes in our corner of our bedroom will collapse and will be crushed to death in our sleep. In fact, the idea behind our podcast is that I'm trying to convince him that I love all my comics, and that's why I have to keep them all. That's why it's called Should I Love This Comic? I love the art on this book so much that after buying it digitally, I had to go out and get a paper copy as well. Yes, I was mad enough to pay the equivalent of $10 for a quick read. I think I might have a problem. And uh, it's funny. My my wife and I are the, the same way. My wife... I, I store my collection 
which at this point is around 100 long boxes, as well as a closet with several, like, five-foot-tall stacks of loose books in our upstairs guest bedroom. I, my, I suppose it's not really a guest bedroom, since there's no bed in there and no guest would ever want to sleep there. It's supposed to be our guest bedroom. Um, it's right above our garage, and she swears that it's going to come crashing down and destroy both of our cars. Um, well, if, if, if things happen the way we're hoping, we're going to be moving house in a few months, and uh, I'll have a more dedicated and safer area to keep my clutter. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it before, but for whatever reason, I, I can't do digital. Um, I just don't enjoy comics that way. I wish I could, because I'm sure I'd get a lot out of services like Marvel Unlimited, uh, assuming that I'd actually have time to use it. Uh, that was a big problem for me when I was reviewing current year comics, uh, because Marvel and DC would send out digital comps to reviewers, which, I don't know, I just had such a hard time to get it, getting into, and uh, I would always skew, because I, I worked for sites that did the, you know, the, you know, the out of ten review score. You know, you scored the books, you graded it. And uh, I would always tick my score up a little higher because I was afraid that the medium, you know, or the delivery method, reading them digitally, was affecting the way that I enjoyed them. So a story that I would have enjoyed had I been holding the book in my hands, maybe I enjoyed it a little bit less because I was reading it off a screen, if that makes any sense. I felt like I wasn't giving them a fair enough shake, I suppose. And, you know, funny, back in the long ago... Well, not so long ago, I guess. I was a reviewer for uh, Dynamite Comics. Um, this was probably 2007 or so. And uh, they used to actually send me a box with the books physically a week before they hit the stores, which was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but unfortunately, Dynamite was like 95% licensed books, which I really didn't care. I mean, it's like, I, I don't need to read three, three series of Battlestar Galactica. I, I just don't. <laughs> I really don't need that in my life. But uh, I did my job, you know. I got free stuff and I did a job, so that was that. Uh, Damien continues, Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson are an amazing art team. This is one of the best-run comics I've ever read. I'd not seen much of Russell's work, and I, as I haven't really followed Thor since the Falco Friends years, and I was, I was blown away. You could tell he was good from the Marauders covers, but this was really a revelation. And yes, this was this was wonderful-looking book here. Um, and I hadn't ever seen him before either. Uh, I didn't realize he was on the Marauders covers until I was doing a little bit of research on him. And uh, I, I think... Actually, I don't think it was even research. I think it was just when I was uh, going through the, you know, the double-page spread of creds here, I noticed Dodderman's name there. And uh, it only stood out to me because we were doing this giant size issue. I was like, oh, well, he's doing this other stuff too. Um, but I hadn't seen him other than that. Uh, I, I can't do Thor. Thor is so boring. And, uh, I don't do Marvel events anymore, so I skipped War of the Realms, which is, I guess, uh, was like his big coming out party. You know, that's where people started to really take notice of just how, how awesome a talent, uh, Dodderman is. Uh, uh, I was gonna call you Russell. You're not Russell. <laughs> Damien continues. By the way, there was an element of madness, madness Paisley, but I was surprised you didn't note that the Paisley was made out of Storm's eyes repeated everywhere. I love the idea that Storm is watching. It was also great to see the callback to Storm and Jean cuddling during Inferno. Hickman also used the dialogue from that scene where Storm was announcing the resurrected Jean in Hoxpox. 
I like the idea of the Head of X loving Inferno as it's my favorite X-Men era. And that's true. They were Storm's eyes. I I didn't even notice it until uh, looking back at it. <clears throat> and I also didn't immediately get the call back to Inferno, but went back and found it. I love it when they do stuff like that. Um, and it's funny. It's, it's, it's weird, actually. When I came into this X-Labs project, I was, like, all full of P&V, you know, ready to rant about how nobody writing comics nowadays cares about what came before. And here we are, more often than not, as it pertains to the X-Men, anyway, I'm finding the exact opposite to be true, which, uh, I mean, talk about a pleasant surprise. That's, that's really awesome stuff that, that they are embracing what came before. And... Just like I said, I didn't notice it immediately. I just thought it was a nice scene. But you noticed it immediately, and you got even more out of it. And then I went back, and now I appreciate it even more. So you don't need... It's like, it's ingenious, right? I mean, you don't need to know it. But if you do, it adds so much more. I think that's the way... That's the best way to handle continuity. Because not everything should hinge on it. But it should be there. You know, um, because it just adds a whole different element of appreciation to a scene where, you know, otherwise it might not have been. Uh, Now, uh, Damien wraps up. He says, overall, I was happy with this. I'm always prepared to have an issue here and there that exists more as an artist showcase than as an actual story. And I agree. I agree. Um, I, I was happy with this. I loved the fact that it was a callback to, you know, one of my favorite eras in X in, in the X continuity in the Morrison run. Um, but I definitely will have to admit that it, it goes down a bit easier for me knowing that I only paid like two fifty or three dollars for it. <laughs> uh, you know, five bucks wouldn't have been a breaking point for me because I am a completionist and uh, and so I'm you know, I've evolved past those things or or the rest of the world has evolved past me, I suppose. But uh, it does go down a bit easier, knowing that I didn't pay cover price for it. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here, Damien. I, I really, really appreciate it. And we're going to wrap up with a message from our friend Walt Neeland. Uh, he was uh, writing in to discuss episode 50. He said, I wanted to drop a quick note. I'm listening out of order to X-Lapse 50. Speaking for myself, I find that listening to you talk about whatever is great. The comic or topic at hand is just a vehicle for your authenticity. Shows like this, I often forget you're even intending to talk about a comic. And it's like, wait, what? No, no, more anecdotes. The comic will still be there later, however cheesy that sounds. And no, that doesn't sound cheesy at all, Walt. I very much appreciate hearing that because uh, despite the fact that so much of my work... Uh, work. It's not work. It's me talking into a microphone. So much of this, so much of this hobby has been... Um, has been, you know, fueled by personal anecdotes and and whatnot. Um, despite the fact that so much of it has, I still worry every time I, every time I, I don't know, indulge in that sort of thing. Um, I worry that it's not, it's not what people signed up for when they press play. You know, if you see that, oh, this this guy's talking about X Men Fantastic Four, and then you come in and it's me talking about. Absolutely anything else for a half hour. I, I just worry that people will be like, "Hey, what? what who, you know, who's this idiot think he is?" You know. <laughs> but uh, but no, it means uh, it means a whole lot to me. Uh, I mean, the reception to that episode has been um, it, it's been uh, it's 
it's been a surprise. It was very surprising. Uh, it's the first time I've sort of indulged in that sort of a uh, in that sort of content during this series, and uh, and I was worried because I. I told myself I wouldn't do that. I told myself that this was going to be a more material-based program for, uh, for as like a resource, you know, uh, for people to follow along, and if they missed something in Dawn of X, or if they just wanted to hear you know, some guy's opinion about it before they decided to, to buy an anthology book or to buy a hardcover, that's what it would be here for. And of course, I would give my thoughts and a little bit of my own history and point of view, but never expected to... Or I told myself I wouldn't indulge in the personal anecdotes, but I'm happy that that so far everyone's really enjoyed it or appreciated it at least, or was just cool with it because uh, that was a that was a tough subject to discuss. I, I've discussed Reggie a lot, uh, but in different sort of uh, framed differently, I should say, framed in, in different ways. So this was the first time I discussed. Uh, the the effect on this hobby, you know, which was something I, I wanted to share for a long time. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And um, when I started this episode, it was just like, you know what? let's let's do it because uh, I wanted to I wanted to provide context as to why why I considered this a milestone because I'm I'm not, you know, I, I I've talked about milestones uh, various places on, on on the blog, on other shows, and a milestone is one of those when you when you're creating content for the internet, a milestone can mean very different things. Um, I remember I did Action Comics Weekly every single day for about a year. It was eleven. It was ten or eleven months. Every single day. I did a story from Action Comics Weekly, so I called it Action Comics Daily, and and I, I mean, Walt knows this. A lot of people know this, and it was a project that uh, was very very special to me because I'd never seen it done before, and it was an era that it was one of those weird eras where I was uh, nostalgic for a time that I wasn't even a part of. You know, I was very very. Motivated to learn all I could about this era and then share it with everybody listening or reading, I suppose it was. And, uh, you know, from I think it was February 1st of 2019 until um, November 30th of 2019, every single day was a story from Action Comics Weekly. And I remember finishing the last one and uh, had this like. Such a... It was very bittersweet. Uh, I was so happy to have seen it through to the end. But it felt like I lost something at the same time. You know, I felt like I lost a friend. (laughs) Because I could no longer rely on Action Comics Weekly. But I remember hitting publish on that final piece. And it was a milestone, you know. And I sat there at my kitchen island. Hit publish. And nothing happened, you know. Uh, you're sitting there, you like you. I, you expect the dancing girls to come in and and uh, and confetti to fall from the ceiling, and no, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, so, like milestones, I've I've learned that milestones only really matter to the person making the content, and uh, so I wanted to share why X lapsed episode fifty meant something to me. And why 
it was a personal victory, an accomplishment that I wanted everyone to know why I felt that way. And uh, and I, I I can't even put into words what it what what the reception's been. It's been it's been so nice. It's been so kind. Um, and it really means a lot to me. It really does. Uh, so yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Walt, for uh, for your message here. It uh, it really put a smile on my face. I, I very very much appreciate it. Now, uh, if anybody else would like to put a smile on my face, uh, you can write to me at Ace Comics on Twitter or Weird Comics History at Gmail dot com. You can find show notes and blog posts and that entire Action Comics Daily project over at chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can also go to xlapsed.chrisoninfinitearths.com to find all the episodes of this program you're listening to right now in case you need to catch up or in case you missed something. Uh, also, the Facebook group 90s X-Men and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where you can find a whole bunch of stuff for your listening pleasure or... Let's just hope it's listening pleasure. Uh, but I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, I want to thank everyone so much for sharing your time with me. I very, very much appreciate it. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh